0: At 11 a.m. on June 21, 1948, Tom Kilburn and his colleagues at the University of Manchester executed a software program on the small-scale experimental machine. This program successfully calculated the largest factor of 2 to the 18 by executing simulated division using only two hardware operations, subtraction and negation. This event marked the first-ever use of a stored program computer which executed software instructions to accomplish a task otherwise not possible using only the arithmetic operations available in the hardware. Today is March 22nd, 2016, and you're listening to Episode 2, Getting Started in Programming on Infotrek. Welcome to Infotrek. My name is John Kearns, and I'm back with Derek and Mike, and uh, today we will be going over... Getting started in programming, but first let's jump into the news. First news item is HP announces a new hyperconverged system. Uh, I believe they actually announced uh, their Gen One August of last year, but now it looks like they are delivering it on the HP DL380, the ProLiant DL380 system. Uh, Derek, what do you think of this?
1: It's an interesting play, right? So recently we had Cisco release their HyperFlex box. You know we have the Simplicity. Nutanix, all these, uh, competitors coming out. So I think, uh, the market's going to start to get saturated with, um, you know, hyperconverged plays and they're doing it to be you know competitive, right? Everybody kind of knows their tried and true DL boxes. I think a lot of us here kind of cut our teeth on those back in the day. So, uh,
0: I think it's Oh good. Yeah, man. Yeah. A lot of people are very fond of the, uh, the ProLiant DL380s. I've used those plenty of times in my day. Mike, what about you? Yeah, so I think it's a
2: good it's a good thing, right? Proven hardware platform, but, um, you know, we'll see how everybody executes. Uh, HP's a little bit late to the game, and I think I said this in the past. This is really going to be a, a, about the user experience in the hyper-converged space and what the interface looks like, how easy it is to use versus uh, the reliability of the commodity hardware that it's
0: all running on at this point. Yeah. Next on the docket here, um, Derek... Dug this up and sent it over to me. It looks pretty interesting. It looks like Apple is getting out of the public cloud. Uh, they're sick and tired of Amazon. They're sick and tired of Azure. Uh, supposedly they might be in Google as well, but they're getting out. They're building their own data centers, and apparently, cloud is not for everybody. Uh, Derek, uh, you you uh, you sent this one over to me. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's uh, kind of interesting if you read the article about their, you know, secret sauce or the secret project uh, McQueen, as they call it, right? So. It kind of looks like what's happening is they're running into the problem where they're going to quickly outgrow, you know, their public cloud offerings, either that through Azure or Amazon. So it's kind of like, okay, are we going to pay them to upgrade their systems or do we take it in house and do it ourselves? And that's something a lot of people quickly learn is, you know, cloud isn't always cheaper, um, but it definitely allows you a lot of agility. So it'll be interesting to see where uh, Apple takes this one. Mike, how about you?
2: Yeah, I think um I, I think it's interesting, right? I think the, the the wait and see for me is if they're gonna do what Amazon and everybody else did once they build this massive infrastructure, is open it up to the public, and really start selling public cloud. Um, we'll see who, who puts their stuff in Apple's public cloud. I don't know that that seems kind of crazy, but uh, it seems <laughs> inevitable based on what everybody else who's sort of endeavored down this path has done. So, but there's
0: there's some diehard Apple fans out there, man. I I wouldn't put it past anybody to. You know, put everything they've got in an Apple public cloud if they ever offered one. I'm sure it'll be easy to use. Yeah, exactly. Very user-friendly. Next up here, EMC wins a lawsuit against Pure over a dedupe patent. Uh, This seems to be a trend going forward in the industry. Uh, I think we have... uh, You guys probably have heard about Cisco going after Arista for uh, infringing on the CLI that Cisco has had going for, you know, what Derek the last 20 years or so. Now EMC has gone after Pure over some IP related issues. I don't. Know. Derek, what do you think about this? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's kind of the, the the name of the game, right? If you uh, you know, depending on what you feel is your IP and go after the ones that you think are infringing, but uh, it's kind of interesting cuz really in this industry so much stuff is so similar, it's hard to kind of really discern who owns what, right? You know, with the whole Arista play, it was, you know, going after exactly what the CLI looked like. So I think there was a couple of patents that they were going after. They may have won one and lost a couple. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens out of it.
0: Yeah, I think the same thing, I was reading about the same thing here with EMC. I think they went after quite a few patents. They went after, uh, they, they were trying to get about 80 million out of out of pure out in this deal and i think they only got about 14 but still you know that's that's some good money right there and it the only cost you have really is the lawyers you had to throw at it the the
1: other thing that could be related to too is you know with the whole dell looking at kind of buying emc opportunity you know if there's something to kind of do with this whole play in the back end as well
2: yeah and i think it, they're hedging their bets, right? It's uh there's going to be a lot of people that like look, are EMC fans today and then they say, "Oh, we don't know what Dell's going to do with them." So their biggest competitor in the flash market without a doubt is obviously Pure right now. So if they can kind of put a dent in Pure and say Pure's product is a copy of what EMC's already doing, um, you know, the, it really kind of probably hurts them on a couple of fronts. One is the, you know, the sort of fud or you know, the negative press around it and the other is just really taking money out of their bank account so that they can't compete as well as they would have in the
0: in the near term. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, you know, maybe Cisco and EMC are standing up some new business units trying to uh, profit on patent infringement. It seems to be a trend coming around in This technology nowadays. Lawyers got to
2: eat too. You
0: don't patent things for no reason,
2: right? You patent them (laughs) so you can stop people from doing that. And if you're not going to pursue action, it's really kind of pointless to file a patent. So uh, I'm not really mad at them. They're doing what they
0: need to do. Yeah, fair enough. Next up here is uh, Google talking. uh, So Google came out recently with a blog talking about their load balancers. Derek, what do they call it here? I can't remember the name. Maglev, I believe. That. Maglev, that's right. So this this looks like a pretty interesting technology. Typically, the, all the load balancers I've ever dealt with, including free ones, are all active passive designs. Just like most firewalls are these days, where you pretty much you know buy one unit that's sized for the capacity that you need. You buy another matching unit, and the other one sits you know sits on standby doing nothing until one of them fails. With Maglev, it looks like you can actually cluster a bunch of load balancers together and configure them to balance the load, you know, using equal cost multipathing across all units uh, and then have like a true N plus one redundancy, redundancy model where you can have 10 units in a cluster with one spare and, you know, only need nine for capacity. Uh, Derek, you, uh, you sent this over to me, I think. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? If you look at it, Google's been doing things for the past, you know, several years now that the industry is kind of just really starting to adopt as a mainstream. Like, you know, sure their boxes are virtualized; they run on commodity hardware. They're not expensive big iron, so it's kind of you know following that trend that we're seeing now. Um, it's kind of same thing, like you said, right? It's not really that whole active standby type play it almost ties back in with our previous conversation around like redundancy right so instead of having yeah, one exactly. box just sit there you have multiple smaller boxes you know smaller being a relative term doing all the work and can easily shift traffic so if there's a failure you you as an in, in customer user would almost never even know what happens um, so it's it's definitely kind of interesting how google and like, like these larger providers kind of pave the way for that you know, virtualization and, you know, commodity based hardware for these expensive boxes that are being replaced.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the uh, the article said it all runs on standard x86, they're using the same boxes for their load balancing systems as they're using for their actual applications. So that, you know, that's definitely a big benefit right there. If you can run it on a physical box or run it on a VM or something like that, and cluster it, that would be an awesome load balancing product right there. Mike, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's good. I think we, we're we seeing more and more demand for load balancers as more and more things go web based. And I think, you know, in sort of the open source space, you've got Nginx and some other things sort of popping up and, you know, now starting to have a commercial paid for clustered model. So it would be really great to see something that's even better than that active standby sort of come out and be able to be used, um, you know, differently than HAProxy or anything else that may be out there, you know, running Tomcat as a reverse proxy or Apache as a reverse proxy, um, and those things that people are commonly doing in that sort of
0: commodity open source space right now. Yeah, yeah, I'd be interested to see if they uh, if they actually release source code, you know, send this out into the open and let people start using it. So that's all of the news that we have. Today, our topic is getting started in programming. Now, Mike, of the three of us, you are definitely the expert programmer. So I will probably be asking you most of these questions. But Derek, you and I can definitely jump in and, you know, offer our... Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't start throwing around terms like expert when it comes to programming and me. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I have done some programming,
0: so <laughs> we'll leave well, it Compared to me, yeah. All right, so Mike... Being a network engineer and a systems engineer, I've heard a lot of people talking about learning programming languages, you know, uh, SDN and, you know, software-defined everything. Uh, A lot of people are saying that uh, infrastructure engineers are, you know, going to become part-time programmers pretty soon or going to have to be. Why is everybody talking about it? What's the big deal? What's the big push to get everybody to start, you know, learning programming languages and and trying to automate everything?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think the biggest thing, right, is... uh... A shift from sort of a a distributed, closed, you know, proprietary model for configuration on most things to this open API model. So there's a big demand for APIs and really having interfaces that we can talk to um, across different systems and across different platforms in a standard way. Um, and really what's driving that is scale, right? We're, we're managing more and more systems, we're managing more and more nodes on our network, and it becomes very, very difficult to do that consistently when I've got to touch every single box, and I've only got so much capacity from a person, so now I've got more than one person trying to perform the same task across this high number of systems, and it just is a losing battle because those two people or multiple people are not gonna do the same thing the same way. So if I can interface with all of these systems by writing a simple script that does this very quickly, you know, with the process of processing power of whatever my client is that's running the script um, I'm able to do it consistently and I'm able to do it efficiently at at high scale. So, I mean, that's really where the, the demand is coming from. I don't think we're fundamentally changing the configurations we're making to all of these devices and nodes. It's really just about being able to do more with a single person and, and have that,
0: you know, have that person do it consistently. That That's the big benefit. Okay. So as an engineer, you know, why would I be interested in, you know, getting started in programming? What, you know, what what kind of immediate benefits would I be able to use it for? That
2: If I had to make a, a ton of changes on the switches, right, as a network administrator, or even just figure out which switches had which VLANs configured on them, as a simple example, and I've got... You know, everything in transparent mode, nothing's talking to anything else, uh, no VTP. I can write a simple script that can pull all these boxes very, very efficiently from a list of IP addresses and spit out a text file. And then I can diff that text file and see what's not where, or or even, you know, program the script itself to make the changes so that everything's consistent across the board. Um, The other big thing here is that we've got configuration management platforms coming out like Puppet, Chef, Ansible um, that we actually have programming interfaces into and I can have it do some of that heavy lifting and reuse, uh, scripts that other people are writing in the community, um, to leverage, you know, configuration checks, um, you know, put consistency in place around my systems, what services are running, what's allowed to be, you know, on the box and what's not from a security perspective, Uh, And I I can leverage all that in a very, you know, rote, sort of canned way just by understanding the programming and not have to reinvent the wheel every time I want to do a new task because chances are
0: somebody else has already done it. That's very interesting, Mike. So what types of engineers would benefit the most from learning programming languages?
2: I'd say, you know, right now it it would be really, really tough for a small business administrator who's got a small network and a small number of systems, right, to to say I'm going to go out and learn programming and really get a lot of bang for the buck out of it. I, I think maybe if you're managing a large number of Windows VMs or something like that, um, PowerShell may be great for you. If you're managing a ton of Linux boxes and network switches, Python's going to be a really beneficial thing for you to learn. Um, or, or another scripting language, just like the Bash sh- shell for Unix or something like that, um, where I can do some, some meaningful things, um, but not necessarily be the most... It, you know, experienced programmer out there and have years and years of academia behind me telling me that I should do these things in this modeled way that's proven and um, and really great to, to sort of write programs that are reusable and pretty to the, the public community.
1: Yeah, so I guess a couple of things that are interesting is, you know, we, we keep talking about programming, but really the way I look at it is we see this as more of like automation and scripting, right? So, you know, we definitely don't really see, you know... A network engineer going to go out and like write iOS apps, right? You know, it's a whole different kind of skill set. And I think that's generally what we're talking about is, you know, when we say programming from the network side, it's really more about the scripting, the Python, you know, tickle scripts. If you're familiar with Cisco iOS, you know, someone that's been doing like say Cisco for a long time, like a CLI junkie, you know, they know scripting, like they can write, you know, SSH type prompts to go out and pull. You know, hundreds of boxes all at once. I mean, I used to do the same thing back in the day and, you know, write automated ping scripts and, you know, check routing tables and all that kind of stuff. So I think now with a lot of the tools we're seeing from, you know, like more of the open source community, like Mike was getting to, is that's kind of what we're seeing in the shift. So you're not ever going to see, you know, this, like I said, a network engineer going to be writing Java code. It's more of a, you know, understanding, I think, the, the, the construct of what an app is. Um, even just from my perspective, you know, long, long time ago, I was kind of dabbled in C plus never really did anything with it. And actually just recently I started to take a few of the, you know, uh, the iOS development courses from Stanford and kind of re re going through some of those. And even just understanding how the application works, you know, like what kind of the flow is will definitely help you be a better engineer because ultimately when it comes down to something breaking, who do you always call? the network i to have figured out whether it's the application problem or it's the always firewall our fault man it's always the firewall or the app
0: <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> yeah I, I i agree with the sentiment around scripting versus programming generally speaking when we're talking about automation and in these things even you know configuration management products are leveraging apis that are newly available in hardware devices that have some sort of os on them um, i think that you know the, the big thing though is this evolves is that Many of the things that we do today manually or that we're starting to do with scripting even at this point for the first time, um, you know, on a widely accepted basis are ultimately going to move to some sort of self-service paradigm in the future. Right. So that's if you think about, you know, where sort of virtualization went from having this virtualization admin to now I want a self-service portal and things like OpenStack and public cloud really being, you know, demanded because it's easy and I can go in there and have anybody do it if they understand what it is that they're looking at at a conceptual level. Um, When we start to talk about configuring more and more things at scale and there's more programming interfaces, those skills are eventually going to translate into some sort of user interface that really sort of dummy proofs the... The configuration and ultimately offloads that administrator's workload to the end users who are consuming it. So I think it's an important thing to, to sort of keep on the horizon that that Python that I'm learning, you know, I may want to start learning JavaScript along with it at some point, or I may want to start learning how to build a simple, you know, Windows app or iOS app, you know, along the way as sort of just professional development because eventually you're going to want to skin that that automation with some sort of interface that somebody can actually click on and, and feel like they're part of the experience or getting benefit from the work that you've done at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It'd make it a lot easier to, uh, to offload that, that work to, uh, to end users if you can build a decent UI. Right.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, more so than offloading the work, right. It's just about speed a lot of the times, right. Is It's, it's, I, I, we live in this, you know, world in this mindset of, uh, instant gratification and you know i want it now kind of consumption i have one hour shipping with amazon now you know i want my (laughs) i want my switch configured in the same way so i want to go click on my phone and and make it happen
0: yeah definitely. Uh, derek derek brought up a good point about so in the past when you you guys talk about scripting typically what comes to my mind just you know having some experience doing that in 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 networking is is manipulating the cli Right, we, we go in on a Cisco IOS device. We can write a script to manipulate the CLI commands on a on a network device or um, on a Linux shell. Uh, but do you think that that is going to be the future of programming against infrastructure, or do you think it's going to be more API based? Yeah, I mean,
2: definitely API based. I mean, even if you look at the trends from like Cisco, for example, right, they're they're taking the things that didn't have an API available. Um, like iOS and making sort of middleware or retrofit applications that expose an API um, like 1PK or APIC-EM and really giving you a a standardized, you know, interface that you can leverage JSON or XML from. uh, And then it does the manipulation back down to the command line. So I can manage my old gear in the same way that I can manage the new gear like Nexus switches that have um, you know, that native API interface loaded in the in the OS that's running on them.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like it would be a lot easier to program against, uh, you know, some kind of structured data API rather than trying to screen scrape off of a CLI. And, you know, it just sounds like a, a whole lot of trouble to me.
2: Yeah, and, and I will say, though, uh, not everybody's got the best implementation, right? So, I, and, and to be critical a little bit of Cisco, even though they're making great strides towards this, is that, uh, you know, when you look at the NX API It really is an XML wrapper around the command line, and it works in the same way, which is is a double-edged sword, right? It's great for people that know the command line, and it it sort of instantly makes sense to them as far as how they utilize the commands. But at the same time, for somebody who's picking it up that's a, a really, you know, hasn't had any exposure to Cisco, and they're just looking for like a standard API, it makes absolutely no sense how I leverage this thing.
1: Yeah, you can tell it's kind of geared for the opposite, right? For an engineer attempting to kind of get in more to the scripting as opposed to a programmer trying to learn networking, which they're they're both dangerous, right? I mean, if you want to be honest, like, I'm not sure what's worse, like a programmer that can program well, but doesn't know TCP IP or a network engineer who knows TCP IP, but can't program to save his life. So it's kind of like, there's still going to be a lot of tight integration between teams and We're not going to see just like, you know, that dissipate and have like, oh, we have one engineer who can do it all. But you never know. I'm sure we'll see some uh, HR, you know, post out there for someone who's a CCI level expert in routing and switching. And then, you know, a master iOS programmer or something.
2: Yeah, at (laughs) at some point. That'd be a hell of a
0: skill set to have right there. So, Mike, say I want to get started, you know, I've heard that being able to program is going to benefit me. There's a plethora of languages out there that I can learn. I'm sure that what language I should learn really depends on what role I have. Can you give me an idea of, you know, a few different roles of infrastructure engineers and and what might be just looking into the future at what kinds of... SDKs are out there for different kinds of technologies. What are the best languages to look at learning?
2: Yeah, so it's really you know like you said, going to depend on what you're trying to accomplish or what your your tasks are that you have to really get done. Um, If you're a systems administrator, you're really going to go after something that has the most benefit in the the OSs or the platforms that you manage. So if you're a Windows admin, you know PowerShell. If you're dealing with storage, a lot of the the storage vendors have PowerShell interfaces as well um, if you're in the networking space and really doing any sort of software defined networking now everything's you know everything's python right so that that's that's the that's yeah. the hotness in the networking space and I think generally speaking for anybody who's trying to learn for the first time, python's a great place to start um, just because it 's very easy to read it 's very easy to learn uh, and it it runs on any system right so it's it's cross platform um, and I can actually pick up a, um, you know, a project like Flask or Django and know the same Python scripting um, that I'm using on the command line to, to write scripts or, or shell, pro- shell execution type programs. Um, and I can take that and I can import it into a backend that renders a web interface, right, with Flask, for example, And it's really, really easy to do multiple tasks, including sort of a a Windows-based or you know X Windows-based GUI interface with Python as well. So you can really build any kind of application um, from the command line to the web with Python. So it's a great place to start. And there's tons of libraries out there. The one thing that I think is challenging for me, though, um, being coming having come from a more robust programming environment back down to Python is that it's really integrated tightly with the file system, right? So you don't really work in a space that's totally isolated. You got to be aware of your your paths that you're dealing with and and those types of things. Um, but for somebody who doesn't have that experience sort of working in a Java or C Sharp or something of that nature, um, it, it really is really easy to pick up. And it probably makes more sense to somebody kind of working with with flat files on their system um, for the first time when they start to
0: sort of get into it. So, Mike, in your opinion, uh, the next generation of infrastructure engineers, you know, they're, they're probably going to be quite a bit different than they have been in the past. Right. Likely with some programming background, simply because the industry seems to be calling for it now. What do you, in your opinion? What do you think the skill sets for next generation network or systems or storage engineers are going to look like?
2: Yeah, so I think that we'll see probably some Python, you know, background, right? So I want to be able to learn how to manage Unix and Linux systems, um, script on them, and you know, as we see sort of this trend to white box and sort of running everything on x86 as well, that that becomes more and more important. Um, outside of the networking space, uh, and we're starting to do more and more with Linux, right? So that that's that seems to be in my mind the trend. So it makes sense that we're going to see people really wanting those Unix-based programming skills, um, sort of pre-packaged with their people that they're hiring. I also think that we're seeing, you know, that this open-source, you know, networking and systems movement, um, generally speaking. So I think it's going to be less about manufacturer product certifications in the future and more about just general experience and and understanding, um, you know, technology stacks rather than understanding a a vendor's proprietary way of implementing something, Um, which hopefully, you know, will cause our manufacturing partners that we deal with on a day-to-day basis to be more open and more standards-based. So we'll see those skills be applicable across their products as well so that they're still continue to be a mainstay um, in, in the things that we know
0: and trust do you think the move towards open source in the industry you know moving towards wanting to use open source products rather than proprietary products is contributing to this desire to have a programming background just being able to understand and implement a lot of the open source stuff out there do you think that that has a role in it?
2: I mean I think it does to a certain extent but I, I think that we're we're seeing manufacturers adopt the open source, um, you know, software that's out there inside of their products rather than writing it from scratch. And I think that, you know, no one will argue against the fact that you can take this giant community of people and produce something much, much quicker than you can with a small group of people who are focused and are driven by someone who's worried about their bottom line and, you know, and budget and all of those things. And they only work an eight hour day. They're not generally as passionate about the things that they're contributing to, it's a job for them versus folks who really want to help the community and really bring something very, very quickly um, to fruition that they're excited about. So I think we'll we'll see that continue. Um, I think that the tool sets that the open source community is using, right, are are the ones that are freely available. So I think that's going to drive some of that, um, you know, demand on the, I guess, upstream when we talk about a manufacturer integrating that product, that open source product into what they're, they're productizing or selling, um, they're inherently going to have to use whatever it's built on. So things like Python, um, you know, being inside of OpenStack, for example, is like everybody wants to learn Python now in that sort of private cloud community that won't, that's excited about OpenStack because that's what it's written in. And that's what I need to know to customize it and contribute and understand. So it only makes sense to leverage that demand. And that expertise that's being created by things like that in other products, especially if they're incorporating portions of that open source code that that may be out there underlying those other things that that ultimately created the demand.
0: Okay. So, you know, I'm I'm a network engineer. I've decided, all right, I'm going to go out. I'm going to learn a programming language. I'm going to go out and learn Python. Where do I start? Where is the best place? You know, do I go to the library and buy a book? Do I go back to college? What do I do?
2: So I, I think it it's different for everybody, right? <laughs> um, there's tons of resources on the internet. I personally don't like listening to people lecture and uh, have to sit through a twelve week class, but maybe somebody out there loves that. Um, you know, get on YouTube, get on the internet, uh, Code Academy. Um, there's a ton of great resources. Khan Academy as well. There's there's definitely a plethora of places where you can learn Python. Um, my, my advice to everybody is that pick up a Git class while you're out there on the internet too, and learn how to use oh, Git, good, yeah. right? Uh, if you want to be proficient in any sort of open source community, uh, you got to learn how to check things in and check things out and branch projects and Git, because that's where everybody's sources and that's where you're going to ultimately want to put the things that you create so other people can leverage it as well. Um, so So, make sure you sort of keep that in mind, uh, otherwise, as soon as you try and go build something real world or leverage something that somebody else has built you 're going to kind of have this other obstacle in front of you when you thought you were all prepared and ready to go um, so that that would kind of be the other thing that uh, I would say is part of the skill set to your previous question is like knowing how to not only use the programming language but to access the tools that sort of house the code like git or uh, you know, any of the other source code repositories that are out there, depending on what, what language you're really working with or, you know, what space you're working in.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually, I'm really fond of Code Academy. Uh, I've been, you know, going through some of their Python courses there. And I think they also have a Git, uh, I think they also have a Git course that they came out with recently. That might be, you know, something worth looking into.
2: They do. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I would say for anybody who's really starting to get into this is, is not only get some, you know, get some, some direction from some of these tutorials or other resources that are out there, buy a book, whatever it, it takes for you to learn efficiently, but come up with something that you can actually build that is meaningful. Right. I think a lot of the, the tutorials that are out there are really great for, you know, mastering syntax or understanding how the, you know, indentations are supposed to be in a, in a Python file when you're writing it. But um, really the, for me, the rubber star starts to meet the road when I make something that actually does a functional thing, right? So even if it's as simple as adding some numbers together or pulling some data from a file and re- resorting it or, or something simple of that nature, find a problem you have and build something to solve the problem. That's how you really make this stuff stick for me anyway. Um, and, and it's probably more times than not, the most challenging thing is that like people spend hours on these tutorials and then they go, okay, I don't know how to do anything with it until they sit down and actually go through their first real project building something.
0: And that's how you find the value too, right? You know, when you're going through and learning it and you're, you know, learning how to take a whole bunch of prices from a shopping cart and add them up and spit them out at the end, it's like, well, you know, I'm never going to find a use in real life for this. But when you need to go in and actually solve a problem that you have, uh, that's where the, that's like what you were saying, that's where the rubber meets the road and you actually find the value and realize that there is, uh, that, that programming has its purpose and, you know, can really benefit you in the right situations.
2: Yeah, Derek, I, I, I'm, I'm, you're surprisingly quiet. I'm expecting some devil's advocate out of you and uh, saying that we don't need any of this stuff and we could just yeah. do it all on the, on the CLI like we always have.
1: CLI for life, man. That comes that comes from <laughs> my hardcore CCIE background. Now, I think I think a lot of this is right, though. I mean, you know, like I said, we're not going to just see engineers kind of collapse and converge, and you know, like one guy that's going to be doing all the work. There's going to be a lot of teams. Um, and a lot of this, too, is going to be probably driven, too, by, like, the company you, you or industry you work in, right? So if you're working for, like, a large engineering firm where there's hundreds of engineers of various types, you know, like, then, yeah, they're absolutely going to be more open towards, you know, like, a white box type switching with Cumulus Linux on top and this and that. But, you know, the other side of this, too, is, okay, if we have all this open source community and, all this stuff that, you know, people can kind of do and hack together, so to speak, then who's going to really support it if it goes sideways, right? You know, some some companies just will not put all their eggs in that type of basket if their, you know, lifeblood essentially depends on it too. So, you know, if you kind of look at it that way, there's always going to be trends that'll just, you know, kind of hit that slope of, you know, moving down to the full SDN route and some are going to kind of dial it back, you know, and, and we'll kind of see how that goes.
0: That's why you always comment your code, right?
1: Yeah, and then, like I said before, don't ever use lie, please, ever, please. Use DNS <laughs> everywhere.
0: <laughs> use a config file.
1: Yeah, use something, man.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I guess the other thing, too, is that we have to adopt adapt the mindset that we have to test our code, right? So that's that's the other thing that's the really powerful problem that programming creates, is that I can break a whole lot of things really, really quickly. Uh, yeah. if I if I don't test my code or test what it's supposed to do, right? Especially if we're talking about configuring remote devices over WAN connections and I can potentially <laughs> knock those <laughs> WAN connections offline. Um, you know, it, a lot of people get out of bed at 3 in the morning uh, very unhappy when they've got to drive to a site to go get something back up that you screwed up. So, you know, be cognizant of that. Build a test box. Make sure that your code does what you expect it to do before you deploy it across... 50 switches on your network or a hundred servers on your network and bring everything to a screeching halt instead of the one box that you would have learned the lesson on if you were doing it in, in a, in a serial fashion one by one old school.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think one of my favorite internet memes I've ever seen was like a picture of a house on fire and the caption was like, well, it worked in dev, you know, so we don't want to have that Probably same problem, problem, problem now, on the right? network yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even just order of operations, right? Like, like you were saying earlier, if, uh, you write your script to, you know, change the interface of your WAN circuit first before the LAN, then, uh,
0: you know, you can have some problems there. <laughs> oh, yeah. The faster you can do things, the faster you can break things, right? And always sanitize your input. Did you guys ever see the meme? I think it was uh, from XKCD where uh, it was like the school calling the mom and said, yeah, uh, we have your son here. And is his name really Robert Drop Table Students? And it's like, uh, oh, yeah, you know, that's little bobby tables.
1: <laughs> that's
0: awesome. <laughs> that's what we call them. And uh, I hope that you learn to sanitize your database inputs from this. Right? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. The faster, the faster, you know, but, yeah, to your point, Mike, yeah. It, um, the faster that you can go out and fix things or change things in parallel, the faster you can break them. Right? And, and it, testing your stuff on, on a good replica of your real environment is very important especially if like you were saying you're configuring things over in a remote location over a WAN link or something like that um i think we've all, probably all been in a situation where we've locked ourselves up <clears throat> we've locked ourselves out of boxes and you know we have little tricks to mitigate that like a reboot in on Cisco IOS devices or things like that but um reload you know, in five <laughs> exactly Well, commit confirm or things like that but you know if you're doing 100 sites in parallel well good luck you know trying to roll back out of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just really about where do you start at that point, right? It's it's just a crazy mess that
0: <laughs> is not going
2: to be good for anybody. Yeah.
0: All right. Mike, anything else you want to talk about on here? Getting started in programming? Any, any other advice that you would offer? I mean, you've done more in the area of programming than Derek and I have, and uh, you've used it a lot more in your... In your career to do useful things. Anything else that you would tell somebody, just as as advice?
2: Yeah, I, I say the last piece of advice I, I would give people is, um, you know, get in get an IDE or an integrated development environment. Um, if you're using Python, you know, PyCharm is great. Um, Java, like IntelliJ, oh, both those are from JetBrains. Or if you're coding Microsoft stuff, Visual Studio is a fantastic tool. But it will make programming a lot less frustrating for you. Uh, You don't have to worry about your own human error as much because it highlights the things that are wrong and it does auto-completion for you and it makes it a much more pleasurable experience when you're actually writing code Um, so you can focus on what you're trying to accomplish rather than focusing on the spelling and you know, your finger is not moving at the same rate as your brain. So uh, that's kind of the last piece of advice. And I think a lot of people discover that late in the game, right? Because they, they follow these tutorials that are online that don't want to sort of plug a manufacturer's IDE or a certain product. And they just try and have you edit in a notepad or something else. And that's extremely frustrating when you're first trying to learn and you have to worry about all these different little nuances of the script execution language. Rather than focusing on just learning what it's capable of and accomplishing a task, so you know it's always a good tool to start with when you when you actually you know are up and running for the first time.
0: Do you think using a good IDE like that, like PyCharm, or is um, could be possibly considered a crutch for somebody learning programming, where maybe you're not learning a skill that you should have? What do you think?
2: I mean, it certainly could be. I'm sure you'll find purist type people out there that tell you you should learn how to, you know, you should learn how to move these bits and bytes around with on your own first, and then go figure out how to do it more efficiently with an IDE because that's really what that's about. But to me, it's it's I'm trying to accomplish something. I'm not trying to like figure out the philosophy behind it. I really want to make it work to get my tasks done. And I think that's probably where most professionals are at that are trying to add it to their sort of bag of tricks at this point um, versus really wanting to understand all of the the nuances of that runtime engine that's executing that code from the text file after I run it. And, you know, how I could, you know, pretty up my code a little bit better without the help of the tool. Uh, You know, I'd say there's limited value in that. It's just get it done and get things moving because, like I said, when you start to build something functional you'll start to love it and you'll start to see the power of it. But if you get so frustrated before you ever get there, um, you'll probably just give up and say, this isn't for me Uh, when a simple tool that took you 10 minutes to download probably could have helped you get that, that gap closed up.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? You know, it's kind of like trying to boil the ocean right off the bat versus, you know, kind of just getting familiar with the concepts and then, you know, kind of go back later to really understand it, you know, from like the networking side, that'd be someone Who's just kind of learning routing to deep dive into, you know, all the intricacies of like OSPF, LSAs with packet captures, like, you know, it would just be too much, too soon type of thing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Wrapping up here, guys, um, Derek, any kind of social media you want to plug and, and what do you got going on this week?
1: Yeah. So from a social media standpoint, you know, typically you can find me either on like LinkedIn or Packet Pushers, kind of blogging over there. Um, going on this week is actually pretty busy. So tomorrow, being Wednesday, depending when this is actually released, um, there's a, a kind of a Cisco sponsored event locally in my area that we'll be attending, um, kind of just hanging out, greeting some people. And then the following day, giving a couple presentations around some, some SD-WAN. So pretty busy.
0: Very cool. Mike, how about you?
2: So I have a uh, an exciting week of um, documenting process <laughs> for, uh, for our sales teams and um, also finishing up a consulting engagement around some contact center uh, work that we're helping with a customer with. So uh, pretty heads down this week. Um, but uh, if you're interested in my rants, you can always find me on Twitter uh, at just my last name, which is A-O-S-S-E-Y, Aussie. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'll never know what I say out there until, you
0: know, you see how angry I am that day. Yeah. As far as this week, uh, I'm actually, I'm actually getting to set up a, uh, a small data center for a biotech customer down in San Diego. And, you know, rather than just touching one tier of the system, I'm actually getting to kind of do it all right. Network security, storage, uh, systems, virtualization. It's actually a lot of fun.
2: Who the heck kind of like that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's uh it's like my perfect project it's exactly the kind of thing that i like to do right rather than just focusing on one kind of technology you know getting to really touch it all is uh i don't know i find a lot of fun in that cool. and uh social media wise uh anybody out there you can follow me on twitter at packet and that's the show guys thank you very much are you gonna go see it mike are you gonna go see batman superman well,
2: I will see it eventually. I, I won't see it at the event, right? Because I got to go pick my parents up from the airport at the same time as the movie. But uh, yes, I will be there at some point. It should
1: be good. Well, actually, it could go either way. Like, I don't know about the whole Ben Affleck thing, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm a little yeah, bit. I've heard weird. So. <laughs> But it's, it's one of those things you got to watch, right? Like, I'm going to watch Zoolander 2, even though I know it's terrible, right? And I watch yeah. Anchorman 2, even though yeah. I it Yeah, it's going to be awesomely bad. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber 2.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Fail. There's, there's only a couple of good movies that have better sequels than the original, like mm-hmm. Terminator 2, that's about it. <laughs> Lethal Weapon 2, maybe. Mm-hmm.
2: Stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Beverly Hills Cop Part 2. <laughs> that's Alright awesome.